great to sing these songs again during this season and again get to look actually at the last book of the Bible during this Advent season. It's a unique experience going through Revelation at Christmas time. Will you turn to Revelation chapter 22? Revelation chapter 2 is an exciting chapter in many ways, part of which is because it's the last chapter of the Bible that we hold in our hands. Isn't that interesting? In a lot of ways, it reflects the last few chapters of Revelation reflect the first couple of chapters of Genesis and where God opened with perfection and His voice and beginning all things. Now He's wrapping up all things. He is the Alpha and Omega, as we will see again this morning. It's just such an interesting concept that God decided after this chapter to fall silent in a sense as, as far as written revelation goes. Uh, and after about 1,500 years approximately from Moses to John, we have what contained the 66 books of God's revelation to us. And here we are 2,000-some years later from that and opening it this morning to look at what John received from Jesus Christ Himself through an angel on that island of Patmos almost 2,000 years ago. It's an amazing concept just to think about that for a second and realize the privilege that it is to have God's Word in your, either on your device this morning and maybe three or four, five, ten different versions, uh, maybe in a different language than the, ones, the one that we're speaking this morning, uh, or maybe right there in your lap in God's Word. It's a wonderful blessing. As I was thinking about chapter 22 and trying to get my head around this passage, I was reminded of Handel's Messiah. You remember the Amen for Handel's Messiah? If you've never heard Messiah before and then you hear the Amen, you're wondering to yourself, where is this thing ending and how many Amens should we sing here before we close this out? And I feel like chapter 22 kind of feels like those Amens where I, I, I don't know if anybody knows. If somebody knows how many amens are sung in Handel's Messiah, please come up and tell me. I actually did a Google search, and I couldn't figure it out. So, and I didn't have the time to count every single amen. So, but that's what it feels like, is it's up and it's down, and you know it's the end, but it's all these repeated themes, and it's being tied in, and then he's capturing what he had in the prologue in chapter 1, but then also concluding in this chapter 22 and the bookend. It's just... It's a, literary, it's a literary complex passage and uh, trying to get my head around it. So I decided to theme it this morning. Instead of just go through verse by verse, I wanted to pull out the, the major themes that are here. We're not going to look at every single phrase, but we want to look at the major themes that are in chapter 22. Like what stands out to John or what did Christ reveal to John in this, the very last words of Scripture that we need to look at and listen to this morning. So, will you read with me in John, uh, John's Revelation chapter 22, verse 6 through 17, as we'll cover this whole passage this morning, and Michael will conclude next week with the very last words. Revelation chapter 22, verse 6 says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We have a lot of different phrases and uh, just words that would capture what's at the beginning of John, like I already stated, and that is really tying all these things together to wrap up this amazing book and really to wrap up the Bible, to wrap up the revelation of their entire 66 books here at the very end of John's revelation. When you think about it, the truthfulness of a message determines how you'll respond to it, doesn't it? That's what really what we've been fighting for the last, I don't know how long, really. Um, some say we lost trust in our government during the Vietnam era, <laughs> or maybe Lyndon B. Johnson, or Uh, Some president that you trusted and then they let you down or you thought you could trust the government and then that didn't work out so well and that's back in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, let alone nowadays where we have the term fake news, right? Uh, And can I trust this news source and how do I curate my news into my feed so I get what can be genuinely trusted. Why? Because we want to know what's real, and we need to know what is true and what is false. If you don't know what's true, you don't know what's false, and you cannot cut and discern between what life throws at you if you are ignorant of the truth, or if the truth is always up for, maybe it's not the truth, but the news or the event or the communication of such is always up for grabs. It almost like you can kind of feel it in your heart just thinking about it as just like the the unsettledness of yourself or culture or any group of people who's wondering what is really true and what's, what's not. So it's important that our message that's come through John... Well, let's start, let's go back. Actually, what's here in the text, what's in Scripture, what's written down for us has come from a man 2,000-ish years ago who was given a vision through an angel that comes from Jesus Christ, who is God Himself. And we'll look at that in in a second, but the chain of communication is critical, absolutely critical for life in all of its aspects. But look down at verse 6. We have to understand that it's attested by, what's interesting, three witnesses. Verse 6 says, And he said to me, speaking of the angel in verse 1, 22, 22 verse 1, These words, so the words he's dispensed to John, are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, the prophets, has sent his angels. So there's the angels saying they're true. And then the the Lord, God himself, the one who you could say speaks to the spirits of the prophets or influences them or illumines the prophets, he's the one who sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. But then you also look down in verse 8. So the angel says they're true. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when he sees them and he hears them, they're so overpowering and overwhelming to his body and his, his emotions that he immediately falls down and wrongly worships the angel. That's how powerful and how uh, amazing this revelation is. 
So it's the witness and writing of John, and it's also Jesus. Look down in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So there's the chain of communication. Jesus, as the Godhead, representative of the Godhead, communicates via an angel who dispenses this truth to John, who writes it in a book for who? For the seven churches. There, it's in that has come down through history for us. So we, that's our chain of communication. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 for a minute. Revelation chapter 1, take a look at what, how John opens his book. We'll just read 1, 1 through 3. Very first words that, that were given, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants, meaning the the prophets, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Very similar to, to our ending, is it not? And you can see that John uses these, this, this eyewitness account. He had seen Jesus on earth. It sounds a lot like 1 John. If you remember 1 John, or might want to just make a note to look at it later, 1 John, he talks about this is the, this is the, the, the of whom we have seen, we've felt, we've actually touched the, the Jesus that he's talking about in, that's how he opens 1 John. John, if you remember, was the one at the Last Supper who was right next to Jesus. said he was the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He talked about laying on the Lord's breast as he reclined at the table. There, there's, there's a a walking with Jesus for over three years. They're seeing his miracles. John knew who Jesus was, and that's who he gets this revelation by means of an angel in this revelation, not only from John's gospel, John's other three letters, but specifically here in John's revelation. It's amazing, the chain of events. I want to speak really quickly just to the authority and the power of Jesus. And remember that Jesus himself is the one inspiring the book that you now hold in your hands. These are the words of Jesus through that chain of communication that have come all the way through history, that have cut through history all the way to you. Really, our belief in that or our disbelief in that will determine life for us, right? You, you either believe that Jesus speaks through His Word, or you do not, and that, that, that probably creates the biggest divide on earth. Those who listen, those who think it's real, those who trust in it, and those who do not, those who would reject in it, reject it. Um, and really what John is saying here, and back to chapter 2, if you, or 22, if you will, flip back to chapter 22, and he says, the angel is saying, these words are trustworthy and true. John's saying, I saw them, I witnessed them. And Jesus says himself, I, Jesus, I, I myself, I personally have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. You know, these words being dependable words mean they are relevant words, mean they're real, they're of import. You can't just say, no big deal. I'll just, yeah, whatever. It's kind of like the nightly news. Should I believe that? It's, it's really hard to know sometimes. If you can, you're like, well, you know, it's like there's some truth there, but I think there's, there's a bent, there's an angle, there's a position, a, a bias coming through here. But here Jesus gives us his words that he is coming, and we'll see that in a minute, which means they are relevant words. And I would encourage you this morning, think about it this way. If the word is dependable, if the word is truth, Jesus Christ himself being the truth, 
Think about the stability that creates for you in life versus the instability that's created when you don't know what is true and what is not. Think about it this way, Genesis 1 and 2. How do you know that the earth that we walk on today, how do you know that trees that we can see and make up the wood that's holding this up, your own body, the, the fact that God created a man and a woman, two genders, think about all the worldview that's packed in Genesis 1 and 2. And if you could wipe that out, you, could, you can't really do this, but you could pretend that you didn't believe that. Think about how unstable and how questioning you would be of gender, of science, of the way that a tree still gives off its seed and creates more trees. Think about that. That's, that's, that just hang on to that one thought, that that tree right there outside that window has, is chained all the way back to the mouth of God that spoke the first one of its species into existence. And you know Santa Barbara. There's a lot of different trees going on around here. Uh, you park your, tr- your, your car on the street, and it doesn't matter what the season, unless it's raining, there's some kind of tree, either dripping sap or pollen or whatever. It's just there's trees everywhere in this town, and those all came from incredibly the mouth of God. And if you don't believe that, it's, it's, you're, you're going through life bumping into just about everything, wondering what is true and what's not, and your life is going to reflect either that bedrock stability that God's Word is true, or your life is going to reflect the shifting sands of saying, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't. I don't know if I can trust God. So it's very important that we have a dependable word, a genuine word from Christ because of what He says next. Look at what He says Himself. He says it three times in this epilogue. Verse 7, He says, Behold, I am coming soon. This is really a parenthetical statement uh, that that is inserted here, just like if you, if you want to note this, there's, there's one in 1615 where John is going through a prophecy and all of a sudden he'll, he'll, he'll do a sidebar of what Jesus is saying in that moment. And uh, there's, there's also one in 1650, but this is Jesus speaking here. I am coming soon. Look down at, um, where is it here? Sorry, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. And we're not going to cover this verse. We'll let Michael cover it in verse 20, but look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus said he's coming. And it's an authentic message, a genuine message that Jesus himself is, has revealed to us in two things on this. That first of all, it's an imminent return. Imminent, not eminent with an E, but imminent with an I. Eminent or eminence is something like your eminence, right? Like the king or someone lofty or someone above. But imminent, it speaks to the immediacy or the, the, the suddenness that, that can come or that, 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 can be, that can turn into a reality. Jesus says it three times that he's coming soon. So that has immediate import and just it has sudden, sudden impact really on our life, whether we believe that or we don't. And whether we do or we don't affects the way we live, which we'll see in just a minute. But imminent speaks of God's time frame. It's the next thing on his calendar. It is what is coming next. And soon to us doesn't look like soon to God. Peter saw this, and Peter, it was revealed to Peter that mockers would come because Christ doesn't come on our time frame, Second Peter chapter 3, that people would come saying, really? Where's he at? But Peter says, don't let this throw you off. 
like a, a thousand years is like one day to God. And, but what happens in 2 Peter chapter 3 is that you're, you may be tempted or the world is tempted to say, oh, because He hasn't returned yet, therefore His Word is not real, and so I can check out or do whatever I want or I can live however I please. But it actually would compel a holiness in the lives of a believer rather than a frivolity or a worldliness that, would, that is tempting when the hope is forgotten or it is disbelieved. But why must it be imminent? Here's another thing. Why, why must it be imminent? What if it wasn't imminent? What if it was said, I'm going to come back in 2071 on March 3rd, okay? What if it wasn't imminent? Think about how that might impact you right now. Like, well, I'll be gone, or maybe I won't be, or, well, okay. Uh, it, would, it would immediately flush out faith, wouldn't it? You don't need faith to believe in the exact date, or even if you did believe in an exact date that's far beyond the years that you will live, it doesn't create an immediacy and the importance of living in the everyday for Christ. And, and beyond that, glorifying God because of the unseenness of your faith that is displayed in the seenness, I'm making up some words here, the seenness of how you live out that faith. So that's what glory... Remember, it says, whoever does not have faith and without faith, Hebrews 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 6, whoever doesn't have faith, it's impossible to please God without it. And that's how God set it up, is with faith, that you would honor Him, you would please Him with faith. And you take out the imminent return of Christ, you take out really the motivation to obey, serve Him, love Him, be made holy today. This faith truly honors God. It gives Him glory rather than continuing on the curse of Genesis 3 of where man thought it would be a great idea to put himself at the center of things. And we've seen how that's been played out for several thousand years when man is at the top. Look at the testimony of Jesus as well. So we have an angel, we have John, we have Jesus. Look at what Jesus says about himself. I think a quick note about the names Jesus uses is important here. Look at verse 12. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Also down in verse 16, he says, I'm the descendant and root of David. That's interesting. Or I should say, the root and the descendant of David. Sounds like Psalm 110, does it not? The Lord said to my Lord, how can he be both? How can he be both David's Lord and David's son? And he stumps the Pharisees with that question. Here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, he says, I'm the root, so I come before David, I come underneath David, and I'm also David's descendant, and I'm the bright morning star, which is really a, a herald back to an early, early prophecy in Numbers that the morning star would come out of Judah. And this is a fulfillment of that. It's not referenced very much at all throughout Scripture. But go back up to verse 12. He says that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Jesus Christ Himself is the author. He's the perfecter. He's the sustainer but he's also the finisher, right? He's the creator, and he's, you could say he's the closer, the one who, who starts everything, who kicks it off, and he wraps it all up. And this is where we are going. I want to remind us that this morning, that you sometimes wonder, where am I going in life, or what am I doing, or what is this all about? Or I'm used to a lot of college students asking those kinds of questions, and then you throw in there, oh, well, what's, what's spiritual leadership? Uh, we had these discussions a lot in my 
uh, previous role. And you're thinking about where are we going? What are we doing? What is the point of life as a believer? And ultimately, we are going toward God. Everything wraps up in Him. We're not just going to the next day. We're not just going to the next thing, the next relationship, the next city, the next part of my career. We're ultimately on this trajectory to meet up with God. All things were created by Him. He sustains them in the middle, and He's wrapping them up. He's the closer. We're we're made for that. We're made for that. But before we move on, if we could just pause for a second and look at a couple other things before we move to the responses that would ensue because of this message, I want to point out a couple of things. Verse 10, look at verse 10 of chapter 22. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. If you want to write this down, I believe in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told to seal up the words of the prophecy. The time is not near at the time of Daniel. But here, it's reflective of the the word that the angel gave to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. And here we have John being told, don't seal up the words of the prophecy. And the fact that John obeyed that command right there is why you and I have this book here this morning. Because God decided my people need to know this much as I leave. They need to know this much that He is the one doing all these things. He's sustaining them to the end. He is coming soon. And many, many, many more things in this book of Revelation. But He said He's told not to seal up the words, but to give them out to the churches, which indeed He does. And so now... What's left is only one of two responses can result after hearing a genuine message of Jesus' return. The first being, I believe, and that looks like at the end of verse, I'm sorry, verse 11, let the righteous still do what's right and the holy be holy, and the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy be filthy. There's only one of two responses that we need to be reminded of here. And sometimes I think we, we might imagine that there's hundreds, even thousands or millions of responses. You could say there's different shades. There's millions, even billions of colors of maybe each type. But ultimately, it boils down to two outcomes, two responses one who will serve Jesus as master and one who will not. Now, I like how the NASB says, verses 10 and 11, where the one who is filthy or is evil still keep doing that, or is righteous or is holy still keep being holy. So your identity shapes who you will continue to be and to play out that, that identity in life. Only one of two responses. I think it's helpful for us this morning as well to remember that Jesus, remember this, because sometimes we're just told that Jesus is only love, and he, he said things that are true, and yet Paul came along and messed that up for, for Jesus. I want us to remember that Jesus said the hardest things your ear will ever hear. Jesus said the hardest things that man finds difficult to swallow. He said, you must eat my body. He he said, you must drink my blood. Of course, that offended many, many Jews in John 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a, a lot of mankind would say, oh, great. Yeah, I love that. Jesus is a way or he's the way, even if he's the way, the truth, and the life. But the next statement is where it divides, but... No man can come through to the Father but through me. He says things like, wide is the gate. And where everybody's going down this really wide road, broad path that leads to destruction. Yet narrow is the way that leads to life. 
He, he said things like, you must hate your father and mother in order to come and follow me. He said, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus said the hardest things to accept on earth. And that, he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He, he, he did all these great things. He healed, he was kind, he was generous. He wept for his people but it's his words that put him on the cross. It's the words of Jesus that put him on the cross. And he has always said what divides man all the way through history. The words of Jesus have cut through history ever since he has spoken them. Jesus does this, and he has a message for, remember who this is for. It's for his churches, This message is from Jesus for the seven churches. And I would remind us of just some quick things from from chapters one through three of these churches. To, To the church of Ephesus, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To Smyrna, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum, he says, the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna and a white stone. To Thyatira, he will give authority over the nations. Sardis, this is interesting, will be clothed in white garments and will never be blotted out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and angels. To Philadelphia, he says, he'll make them a pillar in the temple. He'll write on them the name of God. And Laodicea, he says to the one who conquers, he will give that person the right and ability to sit on the throne with Christ. All of those mixed together are the message to the churches that Christ has said these things. But remember, almost in every single one, minus two, the word repent is there for those churches. Those churches that would stray, even us, if we stray in our hearts, Christ has a message for us this morning that Jesus is the one who speaks here and it produces only one of the following two responses. It'll either produce obedience that brings blessing or disobedience that brings, and you could say, continues the curse. Continues the curse. Um, Think about how it feels to be ignored. You ever been ignored? Of course you have. Sometimes we're ignored multiple times a day. Sometimes we're maybe per week or... Maybe you feel like you're screaming and no one's listening. Um, it, it hurts to be annoyed, right? It's frustrating, or I say annoyed, ignored. It's annoying to be ignored. Uh, it's more than that, isn't it, though? It's, it's, it's hurtful to be ignored. And here we come to the most precious words ever written, G, the words of Jesus Christ himself. And you have to ask yourself this morning, what am I doing with them? Is it, did the words of Jesus cause hope and life and um, this river of life flowing up through me that creates the obedience and holiness and righteousness? Or am I ignoring these words and have said, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go along with it, but not in here, not in here. Or maybe I will go along with those things as that works out for me and that, that's, that's a really good plan that, that helps me along. But on these things over here in that corner or in that room, you're not getting that, Christ. You're not getting that. You're, we're going to ignore your words on that front. We have to recognize as, as believers this morning that this hope in Christ's return produces genuine obedience that will bring a blessing. This, these blessings are not just recorded here in chapter 22. Uh, they're actually throughout. And let me read a couple of them to you. He starts the book. I think we already, we already read this this morning in 1.3, that if you read aloud the book, blessed are those who hear and keep it. That sounds like Jesus Christ when he says um, to, to those, the crowd that was following him, saying, blessed is, is, is your mother for bearing you. And he's like, actually, 
Let me correct that statement. It's not about my mom, is what Jesus is saying. It's not about my mom. It's actually about who hears the word of God and does it. That's who has a blessing. Verses chapter 1, 3, 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors. Another blessing in Revelation is, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are the, are the holy, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. And then here in Revelation chapter 22, 7 says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then in twenty two fourteen, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. In other words, those who wash their robes in Christ's righteousness are clothed with that righteousness and approach his throne and enter his city and have a functional and real uh, perfect relationship with Christ because of the righteousness that is wrapped around them in and clothed, clothed around them and not of their own works. 7.14 actually says that they're washed in the blood of the Lamb, which this, this washing of robes infers what? There's a filthiness to the robes before Christ. There's an unpresentability of ourselves outside of the clothing, the wrappings around of Christ's righteousness. We come to Him on our own. Um, we have only our own works to stand upon. We, we come before Christ because of His goodness, His righteousness. We become justified and we become more than conquerors as the warnings and the promises to the churches have said. You think about... Um, what exactly is a blessing and what does it produce? Think about the, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. What does it say there? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? They'll be satisfied. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are saying, I don't have it and I need it. How does that work? What we like to do when we hear that as a Pharisee or we hear that as sometimes perhaps even in an unbelieving state, we hear, oh, okay, well, this, if this is what I got to do to get that, okay, let's, let's start working this out. And we as sinful human beings will take even a message that's meant to break us and say, you don't have the perfection that God desires to get into the kingdom, we'll even take that and we'll make it into a list of rules to, to somehow justify our coming over into the kingdom. That's not what the Beatitudes are there for. While at the same time, you can't preach it so hard to say, oh, well, you just believe in Christ and you don't need to worry about hungering and thirsting for righteousness or being meek or whatever, fill in the blank for that beatitude. See, the beatitudes both create a humility and emptiness while at the same time producing that river of life, if you will, that flows out of that hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that willingness to say, I need the perfections of Christ somehow in God's miraculous plan, produces the holy, otherworldly, even heavenly aspirations and abilities by the power of God's Spirit to actually then do those things. I hope that's making sense. Where you long for that righteousness and in saying, I don't have it on my own, produces that righteousness. Yet when we do say, I've got it, I understand it, I have the righteousness required. What does that in turn do? It produces all kinds of filthiness and disobedience and the inability to put to death the deeds of the flesh because that's 
walking according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. So having this understanding, this hope that Christ is returning produces what actually glorifies God in the first place. Having that, having, not having that hope produces the op- opposite. And it, if I could just say this last thing under obedience, we can, even as believers, forget, right? We can forget. That's First Peter, no, Second Peter 1 says that. Sometimes we get so short-sighted, we've forgotten that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And when we forget, when we lose that hope, what fills in to, the, to those low-lying areas in our life, right? Disobedience, depression, um, maybe a, a laziness. And all of that goes back to when we have hope in God. Psalm 62 says, you know, why are you downcast, O my soul? The, the immediate answer is hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. The reason we're downcast is because of usually where our eyes are, what we're focusing on, what our expectations are of life that are not being fulfilled because this is not heaven. It really is, is a perspective. It's, we're, we're walking through life with a perspective that is temporal and, in a sense, godless. Even if, it's, even if you're a believer, okay, I want to make sure we're, we're, we're clear this morning, even as a believer, there's, there's sometimes this forgetfulness and a walking through life in, in somewhat of a godless fashion. Not that you've forgotten about God entirely, not that you've disbelieved in God, not that you've given up on the faith and walked away from Him, but just functionally, there can be this perspective that is only temporal. And with this, Jesus saying, I'm coming and I'm coming soon, should affect the everyday, right? It should affect every day of my life when I have that hope. John says this also in his his small letter. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. So you take away that hope, I have no motivation for purity. I have no motivation to do the right thing if I if I take hope away from my future, and I, all I have is hope here, which is not really much hope at all. But you put hope in front of me, you put Christ beyond me, saying he's, he's out there and he's bringing me, he's drawing me toward him like he said he would. Then that motivates the temporal. That eternal perspective motivates the temporal. Last thing, you see at the end of verse 10 that we've already covered this verse really, that the evil evildoers still do evil, the filthy still be filthy. Look also down at verse 15. Verse 15, outside the city gates are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is the same list very similar to the list that's in chapter 21, talking about who is thrown into the lake of fire. You think about it, those are those are very strong, definite words. Dogs, never a compliment in the Word of God. It's not something that's a modernized pet. It's, it's never something fluffy and cute. It describes when you, even if you let a dog do whatever it wants to do rather than domesticate it, it's very interesting how canines work. If you can you can bend them towards domestication, but if you just let them do what a dog's going to do, it, it goes more towards wolf and fox and wild and rugged and mangy, right? Gross. And that's what, that's, it shows you the amazing power of domestication, what it can do on a species. But at the same time, a dog in the Old Testament and the New Testament was always something that described inherent chasing of natural desires. That's what it describes, is a dog goes after, um, well, you know what the proverb says, right? A dog returns to its vomit. That's pretty disgusting. 
Um, a dog does that. Yes, that's gross. And a dog does it. Why? Because it's innate in, in the dog. That's what this describes here is those who would chase and really lift up in an idolatrous way anything that's higher than God. That's what, that's what this is. Anything higher than God. That's why it says that those in the list, there's our idolaters. But also something that I'd, I'd like us to see is everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Isn't that interesting? Some of your translations say, who love and practice a lie. Love lying. Love believing in the lie. Love committing the lie, propagating the lie. Whether you listen to it, whether the, whether the lie is into the ear or out of the mouth, it's this everybody who loves that and practices falsehood will be outside of God's presence. And that is the second response. This disobedience brings a curse. And this is a warning for every reader, for every church member, for every person who ever hears Revelation to know there are consequences to the way I view life now. And we cannot miss this. We cannot miss this. I was reading in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, a very interesting read, uh, but reading about the, the reign of King Charles IX, I believe it's the ninth, and his mother, Catherine de Medici, you may have heard that if you're a history buff, she was the one that really orchestrated the massacre, massacre of the Huguenots in France on St. Bartholomew's Day. And it's described of her that she enjoyed deceit. She enjoyed lying and plotting and orchestrating and pulling the strings to get this massacre, massacre pulled off while feigning the invitation to a wedding feast. And uh, she, at the same time, was setting military in place. So at the toll of a bell, on uh, it was a morning in April, I can't remember the date, I believe it was 1572, that when this bell at dawn went off, the entire military that she had commissioned was meant to do a, you could call it a religious cleansing, but those, that religion was the Huguenots were those who had left the Roman church and said, we will believe in the gospel. And it says that she loved and um, really delighted in the deceit that took place on that day. That's just one example, but it's not just wicked monarchs like her. It's anybody who loves and practices deceit and lying, anybody who's, that's their lifestyle. Look at verse 17 as we conclude. Verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And here's a play on words. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So the Spirit, God's Spirit, and the bride saying, come, the one who is a hearer of Revelation or a believer is saying, yes, come. That's why you have it down in verse 20, come Lord Jesus. But then he turns the word to say, let the one who desires and the one who's thirsty. You know what that means? The last message of Revelation is, if you're reading this, it's not too late. If you're reading this, and you're thirsty, and you desire, guess what? The doors are open for you. It is not too late. You can come to the Lord who disclosed this information that verse right there to you and to me, let the one who is thirsty and the one who desires come find what? This is where we connect with John 4. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Christ is not going to charge you for that water that he can give and only he can produce that comes up in your soul and creates waters of Living, living waters of life. That's what Christ gave you. We have, to, we have to make sure, let's not miss that, that that is the message of Revelation, that all of the 
dynamic and really mind-blowing warnings and visions that are hard to get your head around. Christ is over that. Christ is in that. Christ will be the judge. But here we have come accept the water without price. So really the takeaway is, is this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Are you ready to receive him? Are you ready to receive him? Do you say, are you anxious to say, yes, Lord, come, come. What are you waiting for still? Can you say that? Or do you say, eh, just wait? Do you, would you like the curse in Genesis 3 to continue longer? <laughs> would you set your heart on the curse to say, I don't want, I don't want him to come because that messes up my world? That, that gets in the way of things I would like to do here. Or that gets in the way of me being on top of my world, quote-unquote. Or being on the throne of my life. Or are you ready to say, come, let's get this over with. We've had enough sin. The world groans for the longing of Christ. Be ready and rejoicing when Jesus would come. And the last line of verse 3 of O Little Town of Bethlehem, we sang this this morning, it says, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is, again, your word that we have before us. It's your word that we have in us by your grace, that you've planted in us by your Spirit's power. Lord, I, I pray that the, the last words of the Bible, the last words of Revelation, your close to us, the, the amen of all 66 books, Lord, would motivate us to worship you, to live lives of holiness before you because you are near, because your return is imminent because you are worthy. And Lord, I pray that eternity would, that hope, of, hope in eternity and your coming would motivate us even this very day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.